Okay, Joe. We asked 100 people, what would you wear on a gravel bike? Baggy shorts or bib tights? And of course they said bib tights. Uh -uh. The top answer was actually both. And that's what the Sportful Superjara men's and women's collection is all about. Take the Sportful Superjara jersey. It's got six pockets, aerodynamic fit, reflective trim to keep you safe. Um, what about when I get a bit nippy on the bike? All right, okay, Sportful Superjara hoodie then. It's warm, it's comfy, all the practicalities of a cycling jacket. So a ride-specific cut, three rear pockets, two zippered front pockets. Absolutely bob-on for multi-day adventures. Oh, get you with your multi-day adventures. Next, you'll be telling me that Sportful Superjara bib shorts are made from highly compressive fabric to keep your muscles working their best even after hours in the saddle. Well, yes, my friends. Yes, I will be saying that. And you know what else? I'm going to tell you that Superjara bib shorts also have a gravel-specific seat pad, so it's shorter and lighter because on a gravel bike, you're obviously in a more upright position. But even better than that, Sportful also make, and whisper this, Super Giara overshorts, and they are baggy. Or whisper this, James, heathens. Uh -uh. Comfortable, fast heathens. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast brought to you by Sportful. Oh, yeah, that's right. New sponsors on the show. Last month, dear listener, we gave you the man, the myth, the legend. That is Greg LeMond. Today, the man who made his bikes, specifically the first ever fully carbon fibre bike to complete a Tour de France, Mr. Craig Calfee. But first up, however, the things that we are grooving and disapproving in the world of cycling right now. Mr. Spender, it's lovely to see your sun-kissed face through oh, the medium of Zoom again. I know. Isn't it? Isn't it lovely? Mr. Robinson, lovely to see your sun-kissed face. You're one of those people that's got that kind of slightly weird all-round year tan, considering you're an Englishman. I look dirty, is what you're saying. Like I've been up the chimney. Well, I'm... yeah, dirty slash jaundice. <laughs> yes, jaundice as <laughs> I, I do. It, it benefits me well in the um, in the winter months. I look like I've been away. You do. You are the perennial holiday maker. Um, but no, I'm I'm well. It's lovely to see you. How how are you doing? You're sporting a lovely cap, which I believe Thank is you for your much. rugby team. Football team. Oh, Oldham Mary's football club. Shout out to the dancing Braves. Fun fact for you about this football club. Yeah. Uh, we've had a Tour de France yellow jersey wearer play for us. No way. Uh, Mr. Sean Yates played a season in goal for our third team. A whole season was he in good the, in the early in the mid two thousands actually? Yeah, was he good? He weren't too bad apparently, um, but he got a lot of stick because whenever whenever we'd play finish playing football, we'd go back to the the Black Horse Pub in Bexley Village. If you know it, you know it. And um, while everyone else was getting in on the sort of the jug of shandy, the Fosters etc., Mister Yates would go up to the bar and ask for the their finest glass of Malbec. <laughs> <laughs> Much to the consternation of the bar staff, who didn't know what Malbec was, probably back in two thousands in a small pub in Kent. No disrespect, but you know, Britain wasn't really a, a wine drinking Malbec nation back then. To be fair, James, even today they haven't heard of much beyond the Cronenberg. So um... <laughs> very good. Well, I've just got. A but point. no, I'm I'm doing really well, James. I'm really happy because it's sunny, and um, I'm looking out the window, and there's there's not a cloud in the sky. It's been over 20 degrees and we're still in March. Like we're, you know, let's like break the dream of the listener. 
yes, we record this a few days before it goes out, obviously. It's still March and it's 20 odd degrees and and it's beautiful. Um, So that's, you know, if we're going to talk about things we like, James, and I'm going to, the sunshine. Everybody loves the sunshine. So I'm really enjoying that. And as you can see, I'm in this really buoyant, chirper mood. But the thing that's given me the most joy in my life at the moment is that in the improvement of the weather, my rides are getting longer. And the best thing about longer rides is that I can eat on the bike. Yeah. Um, and ultimately, cycling to me is just an excuse to eat. Absolutely. Um, predominantly, it's all based... Like Most of my rides are based around cafes. And it's like, okay, I want to do this route because I want to go to this deli or I want to go to this cafe that I, does know, I know does really good coffee cake, etc. But the good thing at the moment I'm finding is that with the longer rides is I've been taking a lot of cliff bars with me. Yeah. And cliff bars are just so delicious to the point where I bought a 24 pack of white chocolate and macadamia the other day from Wiggle. Oh, yeah. On a bit of a sour. Oh, yeah. Unbelievable purchase. Um, And I've already gone through them in like less, just over a week. Really? Yeah. Because obviously you think, oh, they're like fuel, they're like oat based food for me to have on the bike. That means they're healthy. So, of course, I can just like have that with an espresso. At three o'clock every afternoon. Yeah, absolutely. Well, <laughs> top fact for you is um, I once served Cliff Bars for dessert at a dinner party with some yogurt. Really? Yeah, no one knew. Thought I'd made homemade flapjacks. Unbelievable. What flavour did you go for? I think also uh, salted peanut, um, the, the salted caramel peanut ones, I think. Did everyone just go compliments to the chef, James? Com- yeah, compliments to the chef. They didn't even acknowledge, well, realise that my um, little kind of like jus um, coolie was just another energy gel from Cliff. And yet, when they left, they all had a bit of a spring in their step because they'd been fed the right sugars and electrolytes. Yeah, they did. I mean, they, they never felt better. Never felt better. That's the, And that's also the perfect foil to any sort of wine, any dehydration they're getting as well from all the drink that night yeah. but with the gel. Yeah. I like that, James. Yeah. That's forward thinking. That's progressive. Burst your own bubble. What, what are you disliking? You know what, I'm in such a good mood that I'm, I don't want to dislike anything, James. But I do, there's one thing that's been getting my goat and that's the, so like the weather's getting better and, the, you know, the days are longer, the clocks have gone forward. Amazing, amazing, amazing. So I'm riding before work now. But what I don't enjoy is the fact that it's still cold in the mornings, which is such a petty thing, right? It's true. But I went out this morning for a ride. It was beautiful, clear. Roads are actually quite quiet lovely but my hands are so cold that um like i i had like blood, almost blood blisters where it burst the blood vessels on my knuckles it was that cold i'm i'm worried for you uh i was worried for me happening. and i've i've actually still got like a tingly sensation in my fingers where i think i was that close to frostbite obviously i'm being dramatic it was only like it was like five degrees yeah, who, do you, who do you think you are bernardino exactly i don't know why i'm moaning so much but oh well that's literally the only thing I can think of that's really got my goat in the last two weeks. So that's good. I'm going to take that as a, as a positive. I'm going to throw the questions back at you, though, because I reckon you've got something incredible that's been well, getting, getting you going. Incredible. Incredible. Um, well, uh, I've been really liking uh, longer rides, too, but longer rides specifically just to a landmark. No so th- last weekend, I went to the Dartford Crossing. I've never seen it before. It's a lovely um, span of a bridge. I mean, bridges are just a gorgeous thing to look at anyway. But the route we plotted uh, along the uh, through Erith yep. and the River Darrant and crossing the yep. creek, 
I've got to say, I, I don't suppose anyone in Erith listens to this podcast because it doesn't really seem like the sort of place where people cycle. That's probably one of the least nice places I've ever seen. Eric, like it was, it was just well, it's a an really industrial weird. Town, James, it's such a strange place. I, I mean, okay, I'm going to redact that. That's really unfair. I don't live there, but it was just what such a strange place. Uh, and then you kind of trans that was it sort of transposes itself into a landscape suddenly of a Ken. It's like a Ken Loach drama. It's like a kind of rolling hills and this kind of almost savanna like grassland and some protected habitats for birds. There's marshlands out there, yeah, yeah. Then suddenly you just got a gang of little utes on their um, mini motorcycles just going, just coming past and popping mad wheelies and stuff and just buzzing, just buzzing you up and looking like they're going to have you. And they probably could. That's just been interesting because you just really see a different part of, of the world if you go, I just want to get there. So fun fact about the Dartford Crossing, right, is if you're, if you're a cyclist and you want to cross it, you can either so there's two alternatives. There's a couple of alternatives you do. You can either like cycle quite far back towards London and get the Woolwich Ferry. Alternatively, you can go the other way to Gravesend and there's a little passenger ferry up to Tilbury. Or, or the they actually run a like a service where a Land Rover Discovery chucks your bike in the back. You hop in the front with some bloke. And they take you through the tunnel. That is absolutely true. And we looked into that, and he wasn't—he was only doing it for key workers. Ah, oh, right, okay. At the time, but it's there. You're—you're you're, you're correct. It's there. The sad thing, right, is that when that, um, when the tunnel, obviously the bridge was only—the bridge only came about in 1989. Sorry, I'm going to bore you with loads of facts about it. So the bridge came back in 1989, but the tunnel has been there for like 60, 70 years, and it was like one of the prime. Obviously, it's a primary crossing of the Thames, first point in which you can cross it from Dover. So for all the freight, it's very busy with like freight coming true, into the UK. True, true, true. Um, and they used to run a double-decker bus service where the whole, the bottom half of the bus had been completely adjusted with bike racks where you just hooked your bike up and then you jumped on, jumped in the back of the bus up to the top deck and the bus would go back and forth taking cyclists all day. And I've actually got a photo of it and I'm going to pop it in the episode webpage below. So you can see it because it's really impressive, actually. I love stuff like that. I like, I like to see that bus picture. That is wonderful. I'll dig that um, out. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I mean, I'm almost loath to to now say anything negative, and this isn't really a negative. It's just kind of more of an observation. But I'm just kind of annoyed that the drinks industry can't create me a full tasting beer of you know a relatively decent strength, four and a half, five percent, whatever. Uh, that doesn't have loads of calories in it. So case in point, Brewdog, we're not sponsored by Brewdog, but I'd like to be because I do really like their beer. Mm. So if you're or any other beer. Any beer, literally any beer, even Foster's probably. Um, maybe draw the line there. But anyway, a Brewdog, punk AF, punk as, let's just say what the F, you know, leave that to the imagination, 50 calories for a, a little 330 mil, 0.5% or under, low ABV, punk AF. Now, the equivalent, punk full beer, 5.6%. 158 calories so it's three times more to have some alcohol in there even though the taste the taste and the taste is different but not crazy different is there no way that they can just pull the sugar out pack it full of whatever awful polyphenols and aspartame needs to go in there so i don't get fat but i can actually have a little bit of a you know tipsy drink once in a while my 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 advice to you james is to just stop worrying about how many calories are in a beer and enjoy them well, yeah, I mean, there is that, isn't there? But if I stop worrying, I'd drink way more. If um, if you could choose one beer brand to be able to make a electrolyte 
drink for cycling that tasted like it's beer, who would you choose? Stella Artois. Okay. You know that. You know every Stella Artois tops all of my lists, which makes me sound like a philistine, but at the same time, I defy anyone to find just a consistently... It's just so good at so many scenarios, even though so many more finer tasting beers. Stella is right down there in the actual taste stakes, but it's just a, it's just the versatile. It's a Swiss Army knife of beer. Yeah, fair enough, that is. How about you? Oh, uh, Guinness, or I, I really like I, I do like a sixteen sixty four a Cronenberg if I'm honest, James. An isotonic, an isotonic sixteen sixty four, please. Right on that note, we should probably move on with the episode. But, uh, yeah, if anyone was listening to that, please make those things for us. Our next guest is something of a cycling visionary. He built his first carbon fibre frame set in 1987 and in 1991 gave the Pro Peloton its first ever all-carbon race bike, as ridden at the Tour de France by none other than Greg LeMond. Today he runs a successful bike company in the States. And while carbon fibre is still the mainstay of his business, you'll just as likely find him messing around with bamboo or at the controls of a custom-built gyrocopter. He is that guy that can make anything he wants to. So please welcome Craig Calfee. Craig, thank you very much for coming on the show. How are you? Oh, doing well. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me back. And so uh, whereabouts are you at the moment? Uh, right now, I'm in California, uh, near Santa Cruz. We always like to ask, what, what could, if you used to look out the window, what can you see? Uh, it's a pretty rainy day right now. Yeah, it's kind of kind of drizzly. A little bit like London, I think. Almost. Oh, I can almost guarantee it'll be at least 10 degrees warmer, though, than it is in the UK at the moment. James, I think you'll confirm that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it has been pretty Baltic, uh, as they say, out here. So, uh, so, yeah, I mean, that is one thing that is uh, kind of similar. Another one we were just talking about, unfortunately, is... Um, is lockdown and you are a bike builder you run a bike building business uh Calfee cycles um how's that kind of working out can you get into your workshop and actually build can your staff do that or does that, is it kind of one at a time well we can uh build bikes now we're still uh, operating uh we're considered an essential business i suppose because we're a transportation sector but you know they there isn't a lot of enforcement on that stuff so a lot of people are working anyway but it's definitely uh, diminished because some of our staff have to stay home for various reasons. Either they're taking care of their elderly parents or they're just uh, feeling nervous about coming into work. And, but we do have, do have some production going and uh, it hasn't slowed us down too much. Nice. So, uh, yeah, as we touched on in the uh, preamble just then, you're... Mainstay of your business is carbon fiber, but you've been doing that for a long, long time compared to the rest of the industry. Um, and famously, as people who've kind of followed your uh, journey will know, you were building yourself a bike back in the 80s out of carbon fiber. Um, what was the story behind that bike? You crashed a steel Schwinn, is that right? And you just thought, Do you know what, I'm going to have to build something here? Yeah, that was that was exactly it. I was had a spectacular collision with a with a Pontiac Firebird. It was their fault, of course, but I struck the the car head on and bent the forks back, and it, it was such force that it also bent the down tube, and sent me flying over the hood, and doing a flip in midair and landing on my feet, which was incredible. 
Now, I, I was a bike messenger before that in New York, so I do know how to fall off a bike. <laughs> but um, the, the result was a, a bike I literally couldn't ride, and um, I really needed a new bike. And I had been working at a shop building carbon fiber rowing shells and kayaks. And I was the guy making the tubular riggers. These are the, the parts that hold the oars for these rowing shells. And we were molding them together with an interesting technique using compression molding. So I adapted that technique to bicycles, which was quite a bit more complicated, but I was able to figure that out, build myself a mold with some plastic uh, blocks using a, a drill press and wooden spade bits. So that was kind of a rough start, but the bike actually worked really well. It was incredibly light, but the main thing that surprised me was how smooth it was. Hmm. Now, back then we were kind of copying metal tubing dimensions. So they were, it was a skinnier tube bike than most people were used to seeing. And I felt immediately though, that I should increase the diameter a little bit just to take advantage of the stiffness to weight ratio. So I soon went into a little bit larger tubing and people were saying, well, that's, that looks a bit oversized. And whereas nowadays, if you look at it, it looks really skinny. <laughs> so um, things have changed quite a bit since then. But that first bike, I still have it and it's still rideable. Um, and uh, I guess the rest they say is history. So, so did you, when you, when you crashed your Schwinn and then you're like, I need to make a new bike, here's some carbon fiber and I know how to use it because of what I'm doing in rowing. Did, were you aware that there was anybody else in the world sort of experimenting with carbon fiber in bike design and bike manufacturing at that point? Or was it just a completely an idea that popped into your head as like a light bulb moment? Well, early on, when I first started working at that shop, uh, no, there was no one uh, building bikes at that time. And I thought, oh, this would be great stuff to make a bicycle out of. Hmm. But I already had a bike, so I didn't really push the idea too hard at the time. About a year and a half later is when I had the accident and decided to build the bike. And by then, uh, Kestrel had come out with their aerodynamic bike, their very first uh, bike. And I think Look was experimenting with some carbon tubing and aluminum lugs, or mm -hmm. TBT rather, uh, the same shop I think they built for Look later. But um, no, so it was carbon tubes glued to aluminum lugs, and we already knew that that wasn't a great idea. And then the molding of uh, swoopy shapes with a single large mold and bladder molding was fine, except that uh, you're very limited to how many different types of bikes you could build or different geometries. So once you had that mold, you were committed to that very specific geometry and, and that's it. And another $20,000 later, you can have another mold. But um, for me, I was on a budget, so I wasn't ready to just build a mold for my own personal bike. So I came up with a technique that allowed me to be flexible with the molds. And that was pretty much why Greg LeMond started riding our bike mm. because we could do custom geometry. And that was the key. So just to rewind there, that's a, a big statement to drop. That's how Greg LeMond ended up riding our bikes. And not only <laughs> is it as you say, you know, there were companies experimenting or not even experimenting, making race bikes like Vitus, TVT, look with aluminium lugs bonded in with carbon tubes. But you were making um, 
an all carbon fiber bike and i think it is the first one that was ever raced at the world tour um by greg lemond but how how on earth a sponsored athlete like lemond and he's the first you know he's the million dollar man of cycling at this point um having got the the contract when he joined levy claire uh how did you get a bike into his hands? Because there's so many hoops to jump through just to get someone to eat your energy products, let alone cycle your bike around France. Yeah, that was, that was surprising. I mean, we were watching Greg in the 89 tour and thinking, you know, our bikes are good enough for, for Greg Lamont. We could, we could build bikes for him, but we had no clue as to how to get a hold of him and how to go through the process. And we saw he was starting to race on these uh, TVT carbon bikes and we thought, oh, he's got some deal all wrapped up with those guys. And I mean, good luck trying to get through. But it turns out that they were trying to make the bikes custom geometry for the team. And they, some of the team members were breaking the bikes. In particular, uh, Johan Lammerts, uh, which I think he broke a couple of them and refused to ride the bikes. And his uh, influence affected the rest of the team and they said well look greg we're just going to ride steel frames and by this point though greg was the actual bicycle sponsor so not only is he the star rider he was the team he was the bike sponsor and he he was not happy with the idea that the, his team was going to be riding steel frames even though they were Le Mans steel bikes hmm. he really wanted the advantage of carbon fiber for the whole team so he's, he was pretty upset about that and was on a search for carbon fiber or titanium to, uh, to be a new supplier for his team. And that's when, in a roundabout way, we got a hold of his dad, uh, Bob Lamond, and we sent him a frame right after they discovered it. He immediately uh, thought the frame looked great and asked us to build one for Greg to try out. So we went ahead and built that frame and sent it over to France. And Greg basically ordered 18 of them for his whole team before even test riding the first one, which I thought was surprising. But wow, yeah. this was in early uh, 1991. So they were pretty desperate to get the team outfitted with new bikes and very quickly. So we were in a big rush and we, we were pressured to deliver them soon after Perry Nice. The, the story goes is that then you traveled over to France, didn't you? And you met Greg and the Z car. Was it the Z team at the time yeah, at, Paris, at Paris Nice? And you gave Greg that first bike to ride after a stage, wasn't it? Yeah, he hadn't test ridden the bike we had sent over at the first point. Mm. And so, yes, they had me fly over to uh, measure the team, measure the team bikes and meet Greg. And yes, that was the first time he raced it in uh, in her actual race. And that story is pretty funny because um, it was a hill climb. It's the last stage of Perry Nice in, in Nice. And at the end of the stage, he said, this is great. I really love how it climbs, but the real test is how it descends. <laughs> so we're at the top of the, at the finish line. I was in the team car. He said, look, let me, uh, I'm going to ride this back to the hotel on the other side, there's a big, a nice, fast descent here. I'm going to take it down the hill. I'll meet you at the hotel. And I was there with uh, Julian DeVries, the team mechanic. And he looked at me with kind of a, a frown and I said, is this bike safe? Is Are we going to lose our star rider on this hill? And he, he was a little nervous about it and pretty much wasn't talking to me until later on when 
we were back at the hotel and Greg rolls up with a huge smile on his face and he just tells me, this is the best bike I've ever ridden. It's incredible. And he just went on the details of how well it descended, mm. how nice and stiff it was for climbing and, you know, all that. So, you know, I obviously I was stoked. And, and then Julian turns to me and said, well, Craig, looks like you've got it made now. Greg <laughs> Lamont loves your bike. So that's a big thing. <laughs> so if, if people haven't come across that name before, De Vries was, um, uh, he's a classic at this point kind of grizzled belgian mechanic that used to wrench for mercs and you know that's a man that sounds initially skeptical and that's a belgian what about italians and french um cyclists what did they make of le monde and his bike they because they are very traditional cycling fraternities yeah the i didn't find a very nationalistic aspect or attitude towards new technology Sure, they're more traditional in some ways, but if the bike is faster and lighter, uh, they're going to try it out. Later on, I was uh, asked to supply bikes for the Team Domo, and I had met Patrick Lefebvre at uh, Mape. I went over and met the mechanic there, who's an American guy, and they were breaking away. The Belgian contingent of Mape was breaking off to form Team Domo. And they wanted a carbon fiber bike because uh, Colnago had been sponsoring the team with their uh, C40 carbon fiber bike. And they were able to make it in custom geometry for guys like Johan Muziu, mm. who really needed a strange uh, geometry bike. So um, it was an interesting negotiation with, with uh, Patrick where uh, they wanted a hundred bikes for free. And I thought, okay, um, you know, I can do that as a three-year deal. And he said, okay, that's great. So we went, we negotiated the whole thing at the, at the Tour de France, the Mapes as a full team, their last year as a full team. And because um, Patrick was going to move on to be the, the uh, director sportif for Domo. And at the end of the conversation, though, it was a uh, hundred bikes per year for three years. I said, oh no, we can't really do that. We're <laughs> going to refinish the bikes and have, you know, you're going to use the same bikes for three years. And, he said, that's not possible. The bikes will, will be no good. I said, actually, they'll be fine. They don't fatigue the way metal bikes do. So don't worry about that. He said, well, we sell the bikes every year to make money. So, you know, we really need 100 per year. So I couldn't afford to do that. So I did run up against the, the challenge of sponsoring a team and how much it really costs. And, ha- and in hindsight, consider myself incredibly lucky to have been able to be part of Greg LeMond's team. How, how does it, I mean, there's no better sort of ratification of your product than it being raced in the Tour de France in terms of cycling. That's the biggest, the best bike race in the world. How did it feel in 1991 when you saw LeMond on the start line on a bike that you'd produced for him? And not only a, a bike that you'd produced, but something that was quite, you know, it was very visionary, you know, an all carbon fiber bike. That was the first time it was ever being raced there would have been a lot of people in that peloton who would have been skeptical. We spoke recently actually to Tom Ritchie who spoke to us about when he used to produce bikes and people wouldn't want to race next to him because they'd be worried about his bike falling apart. But that must've been quite a call for you as a builder to be sitting there watching Greg roll out at the Tour de France as the defending champion on your bike. That's completely different. Yeah, that was pretty much uh, the the high point of my bicycle building uh, career, where 
I mean, you know, when you're a frame builder in the United States or anywhere really, you know, the, the question comes up, uh, so, you know, who rides your bike? And, you know, I had the trump card on that one. I could just say, well, Greg Lamont. And, you know, immediately that just gives you instant credibility. And, and it did help my business for sure. So, but the big challenge for me from that point forward was how do I actually uh, make a profitable business out of making bicycles in the United States, which is incredibly difficult to, mm. to make money doing that. So we went through a long period of time struggling to make a living, even though we had customers and they were very demanding. Um, they were willing to pay, of course, but it was still really hard to, to make a living uh, paying American wages in a California, which is one of the most expensive places to run a business. So that was my new challenge after designing and building, you know, what I considered the best bike in the world. Um, and then, of course, the competition started uh, with carbon fiber, uh, mainly from China. Mm. So, you know, that's a, you know, worldwide challenge for any business is how do you compete with China and stay manufacturing and relevant in the United States? So our focus has been to do what China can't do. And of course, that started with the custom geometry bikes, and then it branched into being the first to try new types of bikes. Hmm. Um, you know, we were early on in the steep C2 angle triathlon bikes back in the day, in the mid 90s with Dave Scott. Um, and then, of course, we got into the adventure bikes, the larger tire cyclocross bikes, which is a niche market that the Chinese have not really grasp very strongly hmm. and then uh adventure riding bikes which are a variant of cyclocross bikes i'd say and so we've been early adopters of new trends that eventually do get built up in china and uh that's kept us ahead of the curve a little bit and kept us um relevant with people who are enthusiasts about new products and new bikes and then um Let's see. In addition, we also repair carbon fiber bikes. We were the first to open that as a service. Hmm. And that was in kind of a response to the flood of Chinese carbon fiber bikes in the early 2000s. And we said, well, if we can't beat them, we'll repair them. <laughs> and that, that's become a pretty significant part of our business. Hmm. Did you find, though, that during that, um, that time where you transitioned from ultimately making a very small number of bikes, but for a very select crowd um, of Greg LeMond uh, into making it a, a feasible bike company that you had those bigger companies coming along and trying to snap you up a little bit like Trek may have done to Gary Fisher or Klein back in the day. Um, you know, if you can't do it yourself, you buy someone that is doing it. Was that a problem or not a problem, but was that kind of on your radar and how do you negotiate that? Well, we, we never really got approached by a large company that wanted to acquire us. So um, I never really had the challenge. I had thought about it, figuring well, somebody will come along and offer me a million dollars. And, uh, you know, I'll go retire like Gary Fisher and Gary Klein. And, uh, and even Greg at the time got after our deal uh, terminated, he got picked up by Trek. And he was able to, you know, relax a bit and, and do other things. Um, until Lance Armstrong came along. But uh, so I hadn't really 
thought about it too deeply. I, I did go out and find an investor uh, in the mid nineties, but that was during the dot-com bubble and he got distracted by other investments. So he kind of let it go by the wayside and, and I restarted under Calfi Design. That early company was called Carbon Frames and now it's called Calfi Design. So, uh, so yeah, not yet. Uh, and I don't know if I really want to be acquired at this point. I'm really enjoying the, the freedom to do whatever the heck I want. Um, I can decide pretty much what direction I want to take the company at any point. You know, I have full control over it. And, you know, I, I get to have a really nice shop with a great crew to build weird, weird bikes, experiment with weird materials and go to Africa and try to help people out over there. And it's funny, I, I was sitting at a bar uh, chatting with Gary Fisher one time at an event in Colorado, and he was expressing to me how jealous he was of me, <laughs> where he kind of wished he had my job. That was revealing because I thought he was, you know, living the life, pretty much didn't have to work anymore and could be Gary Fisher. But he was, I think, it seemed to me he was a bit bored and wasn't expressing his uh, creative side very much where I get to do it all day long. And one of those, I think the big expressions of creativity is very obvious in how your bikes look as well. You know, that's, they have a personality. They have a distinct silhouette. You could pick out a Calfi um, in a lineup at a thousand yards. And for those who aren't familiar, it's very specifically, I'm not sure how best to describe it, but the kind of uh, almost gussets or um, reinforcements that you see running around the tube junctions because of the way that you build them in that tube to lug fashion. So it's kind of like a, a, a webbing, I suppose, but it's very elegant, but it was present on that original bike with Le Mans and you've kept that. But then the other thing you mentioned, you know, those knockoffs from China and Alibaba being able to do you a Colnago C64 in inverted commas that looks for all the world, <laughs> not, not a million miles off. You do something that a lot of brands don't and that's suspension. And that's almost come to define your higher end bikes i you know to my mind on and this is on a road bike do you you know why do you keep pushing that envelope because you've been doing it for a number of years and there's not maybe moots is another brand that will op, option suspension um on the, the rear of a bike but no one else really is why is that and should we be doing more of it yeah that's a great question um suspension on road bikes uh is actually faster and that's why we did it we found it's actually faster climbing, uh, which is the area we thought we'd get some criticism like, oh, suspension's just going to sap your energy from climbs. And we thought, well, let's measure that. So we, we did. We set up a test and had some really great Austrian interns run this test where we did a, a segment of a climb. Uh, we did 10 runs with the suspension active, which is about a 12 millimeter uh, spring at the seat stays, similar to what Moots has done, and then 10 runs with it locked out with an aluminum plug instead of the spring. And it was uh, electrically powered, so it didn't uh, rely on the rider's legs. We could actually measure exactly how much power it took. Hmm. So we put the bikes at a steady state um, throttle and up and went up the hill. And all 10 runs of the suspension bike were about 30 meters ahead of the runs with the aluminum plug. So it was, I mean, that's just pretty much uh, cut and dry. Yeah. And then we had some pro racers uh, try the suspension bike and they 
they really liked it. They thought this is this is something. There's really something to this. But there was one problem. The front needs suspension now too, because they can't have the rear wheel acting differently from the front wheel. So if the front wheel's not suspended, but the rear is, it's just different. They just, it's not, they haven't been riding that kind of setup since they were 12 years old. And so they're not able to just forget about the bike and focus on their effort and have the bike respond, you know, through their muscle memory as, and not crash basically. So um, I said, if you can balance the front with the rear, then, then you've really got something. So we've been trying to come up with a front suspension that's not uh, too flexible for sprinting. And so sprinters really work the front wheel, which mm. is something I didn't realize until we focused on this problem. And so having a lockout on this front suspension for sprinting would be great, but we haven't really come up with the ideal scenario for that. In fact, I, I broke a, my first uh, bone test riding it and... Uh, <laughs> That set me back a little bit. Now we're looking at suspension stems and seeing if that can be worked out. Uh, and I think that eventually will be common in the Peloton because better traction through suspension means you'll crash uh, less often. Hmm. And I did a study of, and you can do this yourself if you'd like, that most of the people who are contenders for winning the overall in the Tour de France who crashed out, they crashed due to lack of traction. Okay, so you can crash out of the Tour de France less often <laughs> and save your career and, you know, become famous as the winner of the Tour de France if you ride suspension rather than not. So it's it's worth looking, if you go back in the history and look who crashed out, Beloki and yeah. thinking of a few others that were actual contenders, and then they blew their, they blew the whole tour because they crashed. And when you look at the situation of the crash, most of them were because of bad traction. Wow. So it's actually quite interesting you mentioned this because one of there is one brand that has pushed suspension recently, as in a brand that's in the world tour and is, you know, a worldwide behemoth, and that's specialized, which has its future shock on its uh Roubaix bike. But that bike is basically kept in a dusty cupboard until one day a year in terms of its pro teams. It's only ever, it wasn't, so when it was released, I think two years ago, it was only raced one, one day and that was in at Roubaix. And even then I've heard from very reliable sources that some of the riders and some of the pros um, asked for fake future shock uh, stems because they didn't like how it wasn't stiff and they didn't like sort of that different feeling. So for, for as you, you also mentioned with work that you've done with pro riders, is it as much sort of having to convince them as they are quite delicate people that actually this is better and is faster rather than the technology itself being the issue? Yeah, you, you really have to get them 100% on board. And it, it's a psychological thing, really. They need to be absolutely convinced that, that it's faster. And the only way to really uh, convince them of that is to give them some some gear and have them try it out mm. and of course trying it in a race is the ultimate test so yeah you have to give them a chance and you can't screw up the first time because mm. once you once you get a negative uh, uh experience with some technology then you'll you'll have a tough time trying to convince not only that same person but then others around them 
that uh, it actually works. Bigger companies can impose their will rather, yeah. rather flagrantly on the Peloton because they're getting paid. And it's like, you look, you're going to ride this bike whether you like it or not, because that's part of the contract and, you know, go win a race. And of course, the companies are motivated to have their, their sponsored teams win. So they are trying really hard to, to make great kit for these guys. Mm. Um, but it's a really hard problem because bicycles have been thought about by people, I think, more than any other technology since you know the, the 1800s. More amateur bike mechanics and inventors and bike companies have been thinking about a better bicycle for you know 150 years and the volume of people putting their brain effort into this has has been you know just unbelievable number of hours thinking about the problem where you know an airplane designer how many airplane designers how many amateur airplane designers do you know how many <laughs> yeah. amateur bike people do you know you know there's a hundred to one ratio there yeah, you don't get people coming along going, oh, you know what you need? You need this on that Boeing 747 because you'll get yeah. to New York 10 minutes quicker. Stick that flap in that direction. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> That's my point. And, you know, and even computers. I mean, you're sure there's computers are amazing. You know, our, our electronics technology is amazing. But I would wager that there's been probably, you know, several factors, more hours of people thinking creatively about an improved bicycle than an improved computer. So um, the, my point is that it's really hard to make improvements. And when you do touch on things like suspension for road bikes, the subtleties of making that work for people is, is really quite difficult. But I am convinced that it will be the future once we, we sort out the front and rear suspension balancing. Similar to motorcycles, you know, the highest paid technicians in motorcycle racing are the suspension guys. Hmm. So, you know, you, you're going to see a similar thing happen in bicycles. Do you think we'll ever see an actual change to the drivetrain? Because that's always strikes me as um, somewhat agricultural in if you compared it to the transmission in a car, mainly because it's really stuck out on a limb. But it has been like that since Starley kicked off with safety bicycle back in 18... 85 or something you know it's been well over 100 years and as you say lots and lots of people have thought about this and then you have a brand like um ceramic speed coming out with the kind of shaft driven you still got a, a set of sprockets on the outside of the hub but you don't have a derailleur you've got a shaft that spins and turns the sprockets are all of those just heath robinson you know pie in the sky or are we ripe for an actual change of a drivetrain anytime soon well, I, I think the electronic shifting is really where it's at. Similar to cars, uh, they've pretty much all gone to electronic controlled shifting. And the ceramic speed publicity stunt is just that. It's, it's, if you look at it and you think about it carefully, there's no way that will ever become commonly found in, in the market. It's a, a great test. It's a great demonstrator for ceramic bearings, but if you look at it um, and try to sprint on one, uh, it, it's just not going to work efficiently compared to a chain. So, you know, the other great uh, um, trans, you know, bicycle uh, powertrain advancement has been the carbon fiber gates belts, 
or toothed belts. Mm -hmm. But shifting gears, you know, we haven't figured out a more efficient way to do internal gear hubs or other uh, way of changing the gear ratio outside of a derailleur. So again, a really hard problem with, you know, millions of hours contemplating how to get rid of this damn chain and these funky little sprockets. Uh, you know, it's, it's not that easy. So uh, the electronic shifting, however, and, you know, going to 13 speed, mm. you know, cassettes, I mean, some incredible, you look at those mechanisms and you look at something like an old six speed cassette and the, the difference is really quite impressive. And that's only happened in the last, you know, 40 years or so. So I think it's a pretty uh, advanced setup right now. And um, I personally don't spend a lot of time thinking about drivetrain improvements. Uh, Shimano's got a whole team of people working on that. So I don't think I'm going to really do that well on that one. I'd rather focus on, um, you know, for me, it's been more about uh, bringing bicycles to, uh, to um, less advantaged places uh, and even e-bikes now. Got a project going on in Kenya where we're trying to develop an e-bike for, for Kenya. And that's an interesting one because it's actually evolved now into an electric motorcycle rather than a bicycle. Because the difference between an e-bike and a, a small electric motorcycle really isn't that great. And they can use the batteries for their lighting and electric needs at home, which is something that a lot of people in Kenya don't have. They don't have an electric grid like we do. So, you know, just starting to think about challenges like that rather than, you know, a slightly more efficient drivetrain on a bicycle is where my head's at. And would those bikes be, because that's, that's another passion project of yours I've picked up over the years, is the sustainability, not just of bike as a sustainable form of transport, you know, pedal powered, feed the rider, the bike goes. It's making the actual thing sustainable. And as we know, carbon fiber is pretty damn hard to get out of the earth and turn into a bicycle. And then what you do with it afterwards is anybody's guess at the moment there's not a great way of recycling a lot of carbon fiber but you've done lots of work with bamboo and i think the last time we met which was many years ago now maybe 2014 2016 uh you arrived um at a meeting bob on time not a bead of sweat on you and you'd ridden a de-restricted e-bike um across central london i think that you'd made out of bamboo and that seemed to be yeah, you were buzzing and that seemed to be potentially a future solution to the problem of city transport. But is that what you're doing over in Kenya? Is it specifically around bamboo? And do you see that as a genuinely alternative, tenable um, material for, you know, for race, not, you know, maybe not the Tour de France, but passionate sports cyclists and, and people across Europe to be using too? Well, yeah, um, in in Africa, I've got uh, several programs going with the bamboo bikes, uh, but the, the project in Kenya is evolving into a manufactured electric motorcycle. Right. So that's a different program, which involves um, uh, renting batteries rather than asking people to buy batteries, which are the most expensive part of these these vehicles, is setting it up so they can can have the uh, utility of an electric motorcycle, but not have to pay for the battery. 
So that's that's what that project's about, which is really interesting from a challenge for a sustainable business. Africa is probably the best testing ground for trying to make a business that actually will work for, for the customer who are very careful to spend what little money they have. Where here in the States and in Europe, uh, you can make a crazy business around something kind of silly because we've got extra money to buy stupid things. And so that's not so challenging for me. Hmm. But um, And the bamboo, of course, is another uh, aspect, which in Africa, bamboo grows everywhere. Hmm. And it's, it's uh, one of those resources that people look at and go, gee, I wish I could make something useful out of this very common yet compelling tubular structure. And that's been happening in, in several parts of West Africa and the Congo and in Zambia, as well as Uganda. So, you know, all these programs, it's like planting bamboo, it just starts spreading and people are selling them into Europe now. Uh, it's been, they've been doing that for almost 10 years a company called Maibu in Germany mm-hmm. has been distributing mm-hmm. thousands of bikes made in Ghana. And I, I'm really pleased to hear about that and, and see that the Europeans have really adopted this. It hasn't quite uh, splashed into the United States yet, but uh, we hope to, to help with that soon. But yeah, um, the cradle to grave aspect of, of bicycles, uh, which I know in Europe, there's quite a lot of regulations with cars where every component of a car needs to have a cradle-to-grave uh, accounting of, mm. of its um, sustainability. And it's, it's kind of just starting, really. Uh, and they're using you know, hemp fiber and in the interiors of Mercedes uh, cars and BMWs. Uh, flax fiber is becoming an important material. So you know, it's, it is slowly being adopted where we think, okay, when we're done with this, are we just going to throw it in the landfill? Or will it biodegrade and decompose and, you know, really fully recyclable? So I think about that a lot when I'm, you know, generating carbon fiber bikes that I don't really know how they're going to end up. Hmm. So with the bamboo, it it really, you know, makes me sleep at night because I feel like I'm doing something decent in the world and trying to to, uh, have some influence in how this stuff is thought about. Mm -hmm. Do you think, because people often, you know, they'll talk about, steel being very repairable and titanium classically, you know, oh, it's going to outlive your grandkids just because it doesn't rust. Where do you kind of place carbon fiber in the longevity stakes? Because, you know, back, as you mentioned, when you had companies like Kestrel and Aegis making the first monocoque frames, um, they were big, solid lumps. And also not every single one made it out of the mold in one piece. And if one little bit was off, the whole thing got binned. Not really repairable. Fast forward to now, you have massive factories in China churning out all kinds of things that then don't pass QC. But carbon fiber has come a long way. And those conjectures of, oh, it's weak, it's brittle, it, it goes soft. Are they, is there any base to those? Or is actually carbon fiber going to outlive everything, including us and titanium? <laughs> well, carbon fiber has an interesting quality where it doesn't really fatigue unless it's been damaged. So, so long as you don't crash it, uh, the carbon fiber bike will last forever. Um, it takes a long time to decompose the epoxy that binds all the fibers together. But, um, you know, it takes a lot longer to decompose titanium. So compared to metals, uh, the carbon fiber is more uh, recyclable 
in terms of its decomposition. It's not recycled as recyclable uh, to convert it to another product like with steel, you can melt it down and make another steel frame. Um, so there are a lot of developments happening now trying to recycle carbon fiber, mainly because Boeing is starting to make airplanes out of them. Mm. So they're, they're very concerned about recycling their, their scrap as well as end of life uh, considerations for their airplanes. But that's a little ways off. And, um, you know, I think the carbon fiber, you can repair it endlessly. Uh, we've, we've done a couple of repairs on some frames that have been back for the third and even fourth time now, where these guys, you know, they, because they know they can repair it easily, they race it without caring whether they crash or not. Mm -hmm. And, you know, before people used to protect their bike and now they're like, yeah. hell, you know, I'll just, you know, if I crash, the breaking the frame actually absorbs energy and saves my body. And that's been uh, something we've seen a, a lot of times. And if the crash isn't too bad, uh, we can generally fix it. The repairability of carbon is really, I think, easier than with metal, uh, particularly titanium. So, um, you know, I'm, obviously I'm a proponent of carbon, but, <laughs> you know, the facts are you can repair it and it doesn't take special equipment to do so. Hmm. Yeah. Um, but when we're thinking about that sustainability and then shifting the focus over to e-bikes, do you have any kind of reservations there in terms of, are we, do we think we're onto something? Oh, look, this is going to solve so many issues around say greenhouse gases when actually the long term it'll be like when plastic came along and people went, Oh, look, plastic can stop vegetables from going off. So we don't have all the food waste. And then suddenly we're like, Oh, We've got a lot of plastic, guys. It's not going anywhere. Are we a bit, you know, are we too quick to jump on the the e-bikes in, in Western Europe and the States because of the battery fallout? Uh, I don't think so, because batteries are quite recyclable. Now, how they're making batteries has been changing. So for a long time, they would put these uh, cells inside a plastic housing. And to recycle them, you could peel the plastic housing off and recycle the cells. But those batteries have proven to be problematic because they, they get wet and they're not very weatherproof and they can you know, corrode and have short circuit problems and issues. So now they've gone to potting the batteries in a epoxy or silicone-based potting compound. The problem with that is it re it's really hard to recycle the batteries after you've cast a brick of these 18650 cells. Um, now uh, I'm involved with a little battery project where we're trying to come up with a way to make it so you can pot the cells, protect them and recycle them at the end of life. So, um, and I, I don't mind revealing the concept is where you first pot the battery cells in a fairly soft silicone, kind of a gel type of potting compound that's usually not structural. So now you also have to have an outer case for that. And so at the end of life, you peel the case off, you can extract the cells from the soft potting compound and, and do a full recycle of that material. So I think in the future, uh, you'll see batteries being considered uh, on how to recycle them as one of the design constraints, rather than just how do we encase this thing in a brick of plastic? Uh, I think that's not gonna last too long 
and if if people don't do it voluntarily, I'm pretty sure the government will impose that on battery production, as I hope they have continued to do with the plastic bag bans in various places. So, you know, it's going to take government imposition to uh, get industry to fall in line with the idea that, look, we can't just throw all this stuff away anymore. We do have to design it and design our processes for sustainability. Um, and we're starting to see that, of course. You know, I think in the UK, you've got some plastic bag bans and yeah. there's more, uh, you know, carrying your own shopping bag and uh, returning milk bottles and, you know, you reusing containers rather than just throwing them away all the time. So with e-bikes, uh, same thing, basically. Uh, and, and actually, the program we're looking at in Kenya, where you don't actually own the batteries, the company mm -hmm. owns them. And it's, uh, you know, what is it? Power batteries as a service, rent the batteries, and they even charge them for you. But uh, that's in Kenya. Here, we might charge them ourselves. But perhaps the, the real way to do this is, is uh, where you rent the batteries rather than own them. A lot of people at the moment are seeing the electric bike or the growth of the electric bike as a as a sort of a savior, a potential saving grace, as a um, as a way of replacing unsustainable forms of transport in sort of Western Europe and in and in the states, replacing petrol powered cars. But should we be looking at the growth of the electric bike as something that can benefit in places like Africa? and third world countries more than it could in the the US, the UK or France, because ultimately the electric bike here is still going to be used as a commodity rather than an essential product, as it would be in somewhere like Kenya, where it's harder to travel and, and so forth. Yeah, I mean, it's it is actually, um, you know, reducing greenhouse gas emissions by replacing the gas burning forms of transportation, certainly in Europe. And even more so in, in Africa, because the, lot, the motorcycles and other gas burning vehicles are not very well controlled in their emissions. Mm. So, you know, they don't have a lot of catalytic converters working. In fact, the cars we have here that don't pass smog testing, they get shipped off to, to developing countries where they don't have, you know, smog testing. So when you displace those vehicles with an electric vehicle, uh, clearly you're going to improve uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Yet it also is an economic advantage because if you can get out from under the uh, dominance of the fossil fuel industry, oil and gas industries, and their related distribution channels into places like Africa, where price manipulation and supply and demand is, is wildly varying. Unlike here, where the price of fuel uh, tends to remain fairly stable, it doesn't go crazy mm. because some distributor decides to you know, choke the supply a little bit in order to make profits, which is so fairly common in Africa. Where suddenly, the gas has now doubled the price, and, or you can't get it. It's like you literally can't find any fuel. So you're stuck, you're walking, you're not riding your motorcycle. With electricity, um, you know, solar panels are getting more and more common in Africa and people really value them because it, it provides uh, self-sufficiency. And then you can use those same solar panels to charge your e-bike batteries. 
And we think that's going to be a big deal uh, going forward, especially if it's a coordinated system where they're charging ownership and disposal of e-bike batteries is controlled more centrally by uh, a company whose interest is to get more people to use them. And that's, uh, that's kind of the direction we think we're going to see in Kenya to start with and you know, ideally spread to other countries. Do you think it would be possible, though, to have uh, photovoltaics enough on a person, maybe on the top of a helmet, on handlebars, but on, on the bike and the traveler to be able to charge a battery? He's shaking Not his head, yet. but I've seen your solar-powered uh, Burning Man vehicle, which is a, how long is that? So it's an r- incredibly long um, piece of bamboo. 30 feet maybe? I'm not saying we should charge or we should run our bikes with solar panels. Um, although we've done a, a BC taxi in Cuba with a solar panel roof, which actually works quite well. And the, the Burning Man bike with uh, 300 watts of solar panels uh, is a heck of a lot of fun, but it's a pretty big unwieldy bike. Uh, probably not a bad idea for places like the Sahel where there's huge distances, lots of sun and you know, trucks transport lots of goods. Uh, It's a chance that you could do that because you don't need to stop and charge the batteries. But my point is that batteries are energy storage devices and solar panels usually go on, you know, the roof of a building and store the, you know, charge the batteries over the uh, course of the day. And then you swap it out with a fresh battery on your motorbike. But Solar panels are really amazing because you're not relying on a supplier and an economy, an international commodity uh, economy to give you the energy. You're not dependent on, you know, drilling and oil companies and, you know, that whole infrastructure that's been developed and has been corrupted in places like Africa so that the end user ends up being at the, the whim of, of the the guys counting their money. So solar panel is a very freeing enterprise. Putting it on a bicycle, sure, you could you could certainly do that, but it's a pretty big bike at that point. Mm-hmm. And what about um, putting a recumbent style shell or, or making what are, at the moment are normal bicycles effectively um, with, with e-bike motors, turning that as Joe can take over for me in a second and, and explain in a bit more detail because you actually saw the presentation for Canyon, for example, who uh, released this this prototype idea anyway, uh, concept for a bike that is a recumbent, that's an e-bike, so it's got a shell over it. So it solves that question of, oh yeah, but I don't want to get wet effectively. Mm. And I also want to be more aerodynamic and more efficient and therefore have longer range on my batteries. Did, did you see that? And do you think there's any mileage in those designs? Will we be, are they Certainly, the no, the, uh, the Velomobile, this is what you're referring to, uh, with a solar cover, certainly is, is a legitimate vehicle. It, it costs as much as a, a small car, but it can replace a small car. Yeah. So it, it's sort of this crossover area between, you know, fully enclosed cars and, and a bicycle. But at that point, you might as well get rid of the cranks and pedals because it's really awkward to to pedal them and you get a little hot in those those vehicles. If the market is ready to to adopt that, I'd say, sure, that's great. Uh, as as uh, mandates come where you're not allowed to drive gas powered cars anymore. OK, then we're really going to see a lot of these types of things coming up. 
but um, they're a bit awkward right now. They're just not, there isn't an infrastructure for them. It's, it's not always sunny in Europe. So I think it'll be a, a bit slow to, a, to really uh, be adopted. But as cars become mandated to not burn gasoline, then I think that's where you're really going to see an explosion of that type of thing. Yeah, so the future is looking pretty interesting for public transport. But what's the future looking for Craig Calfee and Calfee Design? Because something else I've come across recently I didn't know about you. You know, you've got the carbon fiber, you're doing all kinds of amazing stuff with bamboo. Now you're telling us about um, e-bikes and e-motorbikes in Kenya. But I also came across a gyrocopter. And in fact, you had a subsidiary or still have a subsidiary company or shares in in a company that makes gyrocopters is that correct uh no that was just a an r&d project um for a company called molnari and it 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 kind of fizzled out but it was uh the idea of it was to make a roadable aircraft or an aircraft that can drive down the road (laughs) flying car (laughs) if you will and and it's it's still a, a an ongoing uh, effort by by my friend Desir Molnar, but now we've gone to fixed wing uh, aircraft rather than the rotary wing uh, gyro, and it's it's being developed. It's a it's an electric one this time for shorter shorter distances, but these are the kind of projects that I I get to pick and choose and and work on. It, it's not really a company per se. It's it's a startup I'd say, and we're just kind of fooling around with with concepts and doing things that other people either can't afford to do or don't want to do uh we just go ahead and try building it you know so it's a sort of build it and they will come effort uh so far no no big investors have come along and saying oh we want to build these maybe that'll happen at some point but now we're looking at the flying car racing as a venue for getting this getting people to develop flying cars more so if you go to flyingcarracing.com, you'll see all of the flying cars that are still out there that are available uh, to come and race. We've got a course set up uh, in the Mojave Desert uh, that goes between Las Vegas and, and uh, El Mirage Dry Lake Bed. And it's pretty exciting because flying car racing will be really cool <laughs> when it happens. <laughs> It sounds insanely dangerous as well. How, so, how how what are these vehicles looking like? Are they? Is it like in um, You Only Live Twice or Live and Let Die? The J, whichever James Bond film is where he's got little Nelly. So it's this kind of helicopter, uh, this little biplane <laughs> that comes out of a shed and the wings extend, looking like kind of. Chi- <laughs> is it like literally like that? There's so many configurations. I mean, it's it's an inventor's paradise at this point. Where it's like, okay, well, there's a lot of very specific problems to solve how are you going to do it? And a lot of people have tried and, and failed, obviously. None of them have become commercially successful yet. And then there's the whole government uh, regulation of airspace, which is a whole nother challenge that we're just kind of starting to get into with drones. So okay. the uh, airspace integration has been really, you know, that's a big one. And then the actual ability to take a, a flying vehicle that also has gear to be safe on the road that's extra weight that's a big challenge so these are the kind of things i like to do and a lot of inventors uh you know dream about flying cars and have lots of cool ideas 
the, the tricky bit is to actually build one and actually fly it. And I have to say, we have been able to do that, but, you know, just barely. It just about works. So it can literally, it can drive, fly, and then drive again? Or does it only, is it only able to do one or the other at the moment? Oh, no, or? it transitions between the two. And the thing that's really cool about it is it doesn't just, you know, piddle down the road. It'll do 60 miles an hour or 80, actually. It's a fast vehicle that will go on the freeway, but it also can fly. So it's that's a really hard one to, to do to get the highway speeds. Wow. It and can fly it... over L.A. traffic or London traffic when it when it mm-hmm. gets in a bit of issue at the mo- on the motorway. It can just... <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's back to the airspace integration problem is, you know, and everybody's focused on these vertical takeoff and landing vehicles because they're thinking, well, you actually really do need to to take off um, from a from an airport unless you're a helicopter vertical takeoff. You can land and and take off from private airstrip, private property. Yeah. You're not allowed to just, you know, stop, you know, fly it, drop into your uh, supermarket parking lot. (laughs) But uh, on private property, you can. Yeah. Well, I mean, they have been looking for years and years at ways to try and make Formula One more exciting. So I think bolting on some wings to one of those. Because they do say that, um, so I've been told by Red Bull, uh, an engineer from Red Bull, that if uh, they didn't, if they drove a Red Bull car, as was then upside down at 100 miles an hour, it would stick to the roof because of the amount of downforce it generates. And because if you didn't have that big wing, then just a little lift in air a lot of Formula One cars would effectively take off because they're going so fast. My brain is already going wild with ideas, but could you make it look a little bit like a DeLorean? Then I could really get behind it. I mean, bring it, you know, <laughs> bring it to the flying car racing scene. Fantastic. Um, and before, I think, I mean, we've, we've spent an hour with you now, Craig, and we, we want to let you get back to your rainy day in California. But before we go, I had a question, which was, if tomorrow morning the phone went, and it was Dave Browsford, and he had an empty check, and uh, the UCI rule book had been torn up. And he said, "Craig, you're you're going to replace Pinarello, and we want you to make our bikes for us this year. What would that bike look like at the Tour de France this July?" Well, I would I would go along the lines of some of the bikes that you see in the Ironman triathlon. Very aerodynamic, you know, body shapes. A lot more creativity and body position at this point. If you're, if the rule book truly has been torn up, then we should look at recumbents. Mm, interesting. So, because they've always said that the recumbent is the most efficient and aerodynamic because of the position you're in, form of two wheels. That's right. So, Just ask. Uh, well, you can't anymore, but you could have asked Sir Alex Moulton about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. And another big fan of suspension. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so well, that that's that's the one we need uh, fairings over our small wheeled recumbent <laughs> front, and great, rear, front and I've, rear damped bikes that then can also take off because we can go that fast with these things because you can hit about you can hit sixty miles an hour in a recumbent I think if you're really going some yeah yeah there's uh, one of my uh, employees is uh, in the eighty mile an hour club wow there's it's a human uh, international human powered vehicle association sponsors uh the race over in battle mountain and uh there's i think four people in the world who have pedaled a bicycle over 80 miles an hour 
So there we have it, James. Uh, Mr. Craig Cowfey, lovely to speak to such a, a wise gentleman of the bike industry. Got a lot of, you know, a lot of irons in a lot of fires um, and has certainly got a lot of really interesting opinions and it was good to hear from him. Um, but what was, what was it that you took from that conversation? Um, well, I've, I've, I've spoken to Craig Calvey before um, and this has popped up and it always begs belief, just this idea that Patrick Lefebvre, so Craig Calvey could have ended up being a prime sponsor of a large team that ended up evolving into Quickstep, um, which was Domo Freets at the time. Domo Farm Freets, yeah. That's right, yeah, yeah. So um, he could have got in there with his bikes, everyone wanted them, except for Lefebvre, who was just like, mate, you don't... Um, we're going to need new bikes every season. And Calfee's just like, well, it's not even about the money. It's just my bikes will last three years, repaint them. And Lefebvre's like, well, no, um, we need to sell them so that we can play. Well, the team back in those days used to sell the bikes. Some teams still do that. Yeah, yeah, to be able to pay like some of their, some of their stuff, including the riders. It is, it is crazy. So that always blows my mind. But, and it does really point to the fact that carbon, even then, was like it's incredibly hardy stuff. And I, you know, we all ride carbon bikes. And how old, you know, how old is your oldest carbon bike? Just think about that, listener, at the moment. And like, carbon really does last. There's no such thing as it getting, you know, in its own gen normal lifespan, getting soft. That was um, a bit of a misnomer from people back in the day. I mean, unless you leave it in a window uh, for like out, you know, that was that was year. big alloy spread in that. Yeah, 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 yeah. It doesn't. It like epoxy resin can degrade in UV, but the paint is UV protected. Blah blah blah. Carbon's really strong. However, what I've really know what you know we can't fail to have noticed recently is the number of failures in carbon bikes, and I'm wondering what is going on there. So, Joe, tell us about the most recent failure. That was Het Het Newsblood. So there was there was a, there's been a couple. So Umlut Het yeah. Newsblood, you had Tom Van Asbrook of Israel uh-huh. Startup Nation, uh, who's on a Factor Ostro Van, which is their sort of aero lightweight bike. And didn't he? Didn't he have a head tube snap? Yeah, or a head yeah, yeah, he had snap? a steer tube snap. He had the bars come off in that kind of George Hincapie, Parry Rebay moment. Yeah, and then a, a week later, we obviously had Matteo van der Poel of Alpecin Phoenix at Le yeah. Summer, um was leading the race um, in a in a short in a small breakaway, and his handlebar snapped on him. He's cut from his Canyon Aeroad CFR, the new Canyon Aeroad that launched last year with that sort of funky. A sort of handlebar that you can make narrower for bike packing. It's the handlebar that splits into three. So you've got the kind of T middle section, you've got the two outer sides, and they slot in. You can change the width. But that wasn't the bit that snapped. It was. That wasn't the bit uh, that snapped. It was on. It was the the drop on the, his right hand just dropped. Yeah. But that's the thing. So what stuck out to me is both of those incidents, and we'd expect this from bike brands because they always want to cover themselves in terms of not looking like they're making inferior products. That's totally fine. So the cynic might say, well, of course, they're going to blame a third party. But I would say that this does sound, it stacks up. The um, factor van uh, of Tom Van Asbrook, supposedly factor stepped forward now. This was uh, a couple of days ago and said that it was to do with the steerer bung. So the bung that goes into the steerer tube is an expander bung. And onto that, you screw your headset um, preload um, top cap. So basically... Uh, that has to be done up to a certain tension, the steerer bung to hold. However, Factor says that the steerer bungs were coated, um, so they didn't have uh, much friction to the surface, so they were slipping. So the teams were, t- were doing the steerer bungs up excessively tightly in order to expand enough into that carbon steerer tube to hold 
the headset together, which is, is bad juju. You've basically got something pushing outwards on a circular thing. Because if they didn't expand it, as you know from everyone's had a loose headset at some point, you've got that rattle, that sort of that rock that you get when you hold onto the brakes, which is horrible. And does and actually I've had it before where you're braking and you, you feel like you're almost gonna sort of rock over the bars at points if you're if you're not careful so it's not good so it's not good so so that blame the team and it's a third party part that factor assemble they they buy it and they stick it into their fork and off it goes and they don't they can't control what the teams do they can write 6.5 newton meters in tiny writing next to a bolt but they can't decide whether or not that guy that's really tired at the end of the day and he's fed up from washing chains and diesel isn't just going to tighten it up to as far as his little his monkey wrench will go um, and then the same case, uh, same thing with uh, Vanderpool, which was there was a third party clamp used, which actually is one made by Canyon, I think. But um, it, it crushed the bar in a place which it shouldn't have been crushed. But I would still suggest that both those things were indicative of people making carbon excessively light in certain areas or trying to find weight savings in areas which before... They didn't need to touch because bikes didn't need to save as much weight as they do. Weight wasn't as competitive. Basically, you know, the closer that you get to a number, and they do say that you can't really make a carbon frame realistically much lighter than 500 grams without it becoming significantly uh, you know, weak. Yeah, um, that they're finding finding weight savings in things like fork steerers and, and bars, bar clamp areas. It's it's notorious that most frames now, for example, because bikes have to hit that 6.8. A lot of manufacturers are not reducing the weight of the frame. They're they're looking to the componentry to really get weight down. And when and, and you actually see it when when bikes come along. I remember Tofosu came along with a Mons a few years ago that was like what four four kilos, and it was nothing to do with how light the frame was. It was just that they chucked a load of like THM cavicular stuff and like ultra light sort of componentry which made that it weighed like nothing yeah that was a frame that was about 800 grams which is nothing to be sifted at but it's not exactly ultra light and yeah so you're so you're saying that greg lamond who we had on last month who's claiming that he's going to bring out a new carbon fiber material that can bring weight down significantly from what it is at the moment while retaining tensile strength is in fact a charlatan no i'm not saying that at all joe i would never say that about greg and also that i don't that's not quite what I think he's getting at when he was talking about it. Because the way I read it, and it was a bit woolly, I've got to say, was that there will be an inner core to the tube, which may or may not be carbon fibre. I suspect it wouldn't be. It would be some kind of expanding... It would be a kind of foam thing, a foam core, like we've seen some wheel brands have, and like Magnus Baxter even had way back in the day in a titanium bike he rode through Bay to give it extra stiffness and a bit of shock absorbency. So it's to create an ultimately lightweight, solid core in a tube to be able to therefore make the tube narrower in diameter, which is therefore going to have less mass, but as stiff and as strong. So there's possibility there, and that is how carbon fibre, if it ever does get lighter, will get lighter. And I've, I'm saying this like I'm some expert. I've always asked this question to people when I have got the chance. So it's a kind of aggregated... I'm, a co- I'm merely a conduit for brands you've assumed the knowledge i've assumed the knowledge having asked the experts and one expert in particular just to call back to me saying you couldn't really get a frame much lighter than about 450 500 grams um with some composites people at argon 18 over in canada we went to visit them and they were basically saying in the way that carbon fiber works you you can't have any less than a certain amount of resin 
for your carbon fibers and you need a certain number of carbon fibers to make something strong. So the way a lot of brands have made things systematically lighter over the years is to actually decrease the amount of resin in a frame and that's by better, um, more uniform compaction. So when you make carbon fiber, you have the resin, you have the carbon fibers and you squish it together. You want to squeeze out all of that excess resin. You only want the resin necessary to bond those things together. So cheaper manufacturing has wider tolerances for error. So they just chuck more resin in there because that's going to make sure it ain't going to break belt and braces. You go top, top end, you've got very little resin in there. And this guy was just like, look, you get past about 500 grams, you just don't have enough resin. It's just not going to work. It will fall apart. So there's this, that, there's this lower limit. Something like Greg or uh, an outfit like um, the Oakland Institute, there could be something there. Absolutely, there could be something right. there. But I, I just think that these failures we've seen are indicative of manufacturers paring back their carbon in just in terms of the amount of mass to within an inch of its life and really yeah. running close to the wire to make those weight savings. I get where you're coming from. I do also think that we need to take any sort of like anything that goes wrong with a bike or something along that nature in a pro bike race, we need to take with a pinch of salt because ultimately those bikes are being tested to their limits. You know, both of those failures happened at races where Tom Van Ansbroek and Matteo van der Poel would have been riding over cobbles at 45, 50 K an hour. Yeah. Which is un which is not what those bikes are designed to do. Ultimately, they're not. They're they're they, you know one's a, an aero race bike. One's you know the Canyon's an aero bike. So's the Ostro. They're aero bikes. They're designed to go fast and be comfortable, and be light enough to climb them. You know they're not. They're not designed specifically with the idea of being ridden over, flundering cobbles. Yeah, that's true. And that, therefore, when that happens, when we see a pro bike racer's bike, like if we see a stay snap or we see a headset fail, it's like, okay, yeah, there is probably going to be some sort of errors in there. But as a consumer, you and I, when we're riding that, are we going to experience the same thing? Even doing, you know, 45k an hour down a hill near us? No, probably not, because we don't, we don't take it, to, we don't push those bikes to the limit. Like, for instance, we, you know, we don't try and, change gear while also putting 700 watts through a frame and you know then wondering why our like rear mech snapped off like you know frequently or well, not frequently but occasionally you'll see in a in a pro race you know so I've, I've i do think i do think like we can't look at it too much i do think you're no i think you're totally right and you look at top end um, motorsport then things just fail and they don't know why tires delaminate at speed um engines overheat and seize up whatever some disc brake part melts something but what i mean i get that that is kind of the nature of the beast and i would point out that none of i don't think any of this should any of us as, as as amateur riders should be concerned because as you say we don't put our bikes through nearly the same rigorous riding and you know to be fair to canyon matteo van der Poel's father came forward and said yeah uh, matteo had a crash um uh before the off camera and so there was also there was already a weakness in that mm. area before he then found himself riding over particularly rough ground. So all of these extenuating circumstances. But I do think it's um it's funny if you think about a Formula One car, they're really pushing the absolute limits of this stuff. And but what they're also doing is they're rebuilding that thing every single race. Part piece by piece, right? Whereas how many bicycles can you imagine get torn down and built back up again? like day after day in a grand tour. So actually 
Matteo like Mateo's handlebar, that could be an aggregate failure from just um, weeks and weeks, months of racing. He's just got the same bike and he's just ridden it till it broke. Whereas you just wouldn't get that in in uh, in Formula One. And I know, yeah, I know that these two sports are very different, but I'd like to see that level of professionalism. I think it's only fair to the riders as well that the teams have put that kind of money into the equipment in terms of the time spent maintaining it. And I was joked about the mechanic stood under a tree just to get some shade, dipping chains in diesel to like uh, to degrease them before putting them on for the next day's ride. That's not that's not a joke. Even today that will happen at Grand Tour races. You know, someone using car fuel to strip off grease. Um, and the best that a lot of riders will get is a new set of handlebar tape every couple of stages just to make the bike look pretty. But if you get close to those bikes, you know, they, they get pretty battered. Um, but anyway, I mean, I'm kind of, I'm, we're kind of off the point. There's, there's nothing to, there's nothing to worry about guys. There's nothing to worry about. It's just an interesting thing. And I, I think it is indicative of us pushing some boundaries again. So that is good because manufacturers pushing boundaries is good. And if there's one thing that we can bring from F1 over to cycling, is the use of a Fleetwood Mac song to uh, introduce our live television coverage. But on that note, James, we're going to bring an end to today's episode. Yes, we are. Um, as ever, like, subscribe, make sure to share with any other cycling friends. Um, I would say see you in a fortnight, but we will be having we will be releasing a bonus episode for y'all next week. A Brucey bonus. Uh, it's going to be a Paris-Roubaix special. I'm not going to say much more because then it wouldn't be exciting and special if I told you too much. But make sure you keep your ears pilled for that one. Um, until then, I will see you later, James. Go and get back in the sunshine, mate. Yeah, you too, sunshine. Go and get some sunshine. <laughs>